from Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Music City, this is The Safety Exchange. Where we exchange ideas for businesses on common sense loss control and risk management. So you can focus on what matters most. I'm Larissa Featherstone, CEO of Johnston & Associates and AccuSure Claim Services. And I'm Justin Gray, Director of Loss Control for Johnston & Associates. And this is The Safety Exchange. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back, everyone, to the Safety Exchange. Today, we're excited to sit down and talk with a man that really everyone describes as a legend in the business of insurance and risk management. He is a man of many talents and holds a PhD from the London School of Economics. He was also an SEC of Offensive Guard at the University of Tennessee and is a founding partner of Commercial Insurance Associates in Brentwood, Tennessee. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Don Denbo. My pleasure. Kind of talk to us about you know, what was it like? I heard you were an all SEC offensive guard at UT. And uh, what time frame was that? Um, I enrolled at the University of Tennessee in the fall of 1967. Freshmen weren't eligible in those days. And so I started uh, my very first game, interestingly enough, was against the University of Georgia, which uh, started on September the 14th of 1968. It was the first game ever played on artificial turf and ended in a 17-17 tie. And other than that, I never lost, and it's not a loss, but I can actually say I never lost a game in Neyland Stadium. Never lost. Which is something that not a lot of people I <laughs> no. say. In no. recent years, that might not be yes, something don't, they can... don't remind me. Though, <laughs> though it's, it's worth <laughs> noting that the current University of Tennessee athletic director, Philip Fulmer, uh, was my teammate and actually played behind me for two years. And Philip and I, uh, we're not such good friends in those days because we were competing for the same position. Sure. But we're very good friends today, and he's a very fine guy. And I'm very pleased with what's going on at the university in terms of athletics at this point. I have a daughter that's up there right now. And uh, though she's not a big football fan, my husband is. And I hear that they have one of the top recruiting classes coming in this, this year. Well, they're ranked second right now to Ohio State. And supposedly, I just read an article this morning before I came over, that they've got a bunch of people with with hopes of commitments this weekend. Um, this I don't really know Jeremy Pruitt, so but I can talk to you about the way people talk about him in terms of reputation. He's a man with a plan. Uh, he's hardworking. He's associated himself with really good assistant coaches who are committed to being teachers, and he puts a real emphasis on recruiting. So uh, hopefully things are moving in the right. It's not been much fun, as you say, in the last 10 years to have been a University of Tennessee football fan. Hopefully that'll turn around. I have to say this, uh, we're season ticket holders up there at Tennessee. And this past season, um, I enjoyed watching you walk out onto the field. <laughs> what were you recognized for again? Well, it was, we had uh, 1969, we won an SEC championship. We actually won two SEC champions while I was championships while I was there. And this was a reunion of the 19, 1969 team. Uh, and it's and what's been fascinating about it is is how close uh, these guys have been, particularly offensive linemen. There are a bunch of us that were from Middle Tennessee, and there are a goodly number of us um, that still live here. And in point of fact, we were all supposed to go to lunch, uh, I think, on the fifth or seventh of March, uh, until the governor or the mayor shut everything down. So as soon as things reopen again, we'll get back together again. 
remain very good friends with these guys. That's got to be a great camaraderie. I've got two kids in, in college, one at Tennessee and one at South Carolina. And it's interesting going to the games. Tennessee, while they have not been great the last couple of years or the past 10 years or so, actually, you know, at least have a history of your team. And then in the 90s of winning at South Carolina, unfortunately, while they have really fun games, we laugh that their their highlight reel is people actually just going to the NFL, um, <laughs> which I'll give South Carolina props. It's a, it's one of the most fun games I've ever been to. But we, we laugh about the differences in the highlight reels during the games. It's it's always a good time. But we appreciate you coming on today. Uh, Don's a legend, as you said, Justin, in um, commercial insurance. And I know all risk managers are always looking at, you know, what is a good agent? What does an agent look for when they're trying to pick a client? What is an insurance company looking for and a good risk um, in making that determination? Because obviously, when it comes to comes to insurance, they're concerned about price, they're concerned about coverage, um, and, and setting themselves up to be a good risk. So, I mean, Don, you've been in the industry fifty years. What do you? What makes some, somebody a good client for you? What makes them a good risk for an insurance company? Well, let me start with as we had sort of chatted about in the warm-up to this about what I try and teach my producers makes a good risk for an agent and an agency. I would also submit that what makes a good risk for us also makes a good or a superior, and hopefully superior is the word that we want to use, a superior risk for an insurance carrier. And, And I think that we probably, before we even get very deep into this question, I think it's probably worth mentioning something that isn't really discussed enough that people need to understand. So the bottom line to it is people use the word agent and broker interchangeably. That's not correct. It shouldn't be. We are, in fact, in this state, we are, in fact, agents. And legally, we are bound the insurance company by contract. We are not bound to the agent, I mean, to the, uh, to the client. Now, interesting. only state that actually permits brokers is New York state. So insurance agents are in fact brokers there. And it's a, I think a terribly important distinction. A broker has a fiduciary responsibility to the client. The agent, which is in 49 states is bound to the insurance carrier. And it's, it's a terribly important distinction that needs to, be, needs to be, I think, fleshed out more. And oftentimes there's this discussion between whether the agent slash broker should be compensated on a fee basis or for commissions. Well, the bottom line to it is in all the states other than New York, even if you agree between the parties, that the, co- the compensation should be in a fee, it still does not change the legal position that the agent, in this state at least, is bound to the insurance company. And so it's, it's a very important distinction that insurance buyers need to know. And, and so it puts, I think, on a thoughtful buyer, a stronger burden on evaluating other things beyond price. I like to start with terms and conditions, but that's a but that's another issue for another moment of, of conversation. So with that distinction made, I'd like to talk about 
the things that I try to teach our producers on how to evaluate a risk. And a, a risk has many components. So there are three things that I preach to begin with. The first is capitalization. Well-capitalized companies tend to be better than average risks. Now, let's be clear, as we were talking about, the best managed company that I know has had catastrophic risks. That's why you buy insurance. Right. Your father obviously was deeply involved with my family business, Tennessee Valley Recycling. And I think, well, for 15, 16 years. And during that period of time, we had the worst catastrophic automobile accident that I've ever been associated with. And it happens. Extraordinarily well capitalized. I, uh, with, uh, with some attempt at humility, uh, would represent that we were well managed. <laughs> we certainly were well capitalized. The management, I suppose, we, we'd have to direct that to my cousin Joel then, though, but that's another issue. I would too. say <laughs> y'all were very well managed. Yep, yep. <laughs> I've met Joel, so I, yeah, I can attest to that. Legend in his own mind. So, uh, <laughs> at, any, at any rate, um, again, from an insurance agent's point of view or an insurance agency owner, the thing that I think is really critical is well-capitalized companies tend to be well-managed companies. And capitalization means that clients can afford to spend the money on things that are not immediately identifiable as contributing to profit and loss. Clearly, loss control, attention to detail, compliance, and all the things that are imposed on companies of all sizes today are a critical component to this. So we generally look at people's financial statements. As I mentioned before, there's a reason that the personal lines carrier's first analysis of a personal line risk, an individual automobile or homeowner's policy, is a credit score. And there's an absolute correlation in underwriting, even though the consumer affairs people have, have objected to this. But from an underwriting point of view, there's an absolute correlation between a high or higher than average credit score and good, good losses and good risk in the personal lines. As I'd mentioned earlier, credit is not quite the indicator in the commercial lines business, which is what I, which is what I focus on, as it is in the personal lines. Because people can be either cavalier about the way they pay bills, or they can just be a pain in the neck about it. I mean, people, some people, you know, basically say it's due, you know, on the 30th day. Well, I don't see any reason to pay you until the 32nd day. You know, they were, so that's just nature. I I advise. I have it's is an old uh, commercial lending officer. Um, I have one thing that I look at and advise people to look at, and that's the quick ratio: current assets versus current liabilities. Or as my uncle Morley Joel's um, father used to say, "If you ain't got no money, you can't pay no bills." And so, <laughs> bottom line to it is working capital. In my view. Again, it's a powerful indicator of success in, in operating and being a good insurance risk. The next thing, of course, in my view, and this, by the way, I know that some of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be at publicly held companies. And so this doesn't apply to publicly held companies. The, the financial test does, does in fact, uh, apply just as it does to the privately owned, but as we are principally a middle market insurance agency, and we, we do, in fact, insure some publicly held companies, uh, including some that do up to 
12 to $15 billion in sales, but that that's untypical for us. Right. We're more uh, attracted to the middle market. And I tell people that family owned businesses tend to have much better experience than professionally managed non-family owned businesses. Now, obviously this is a rule. There's, this is a rule to which there's every exception in, in the, in the world. Why do you think that is? What would be, I mean, I, I would tend to agree with you, but I'm just curious as to what you've seen over the years. I, I, again, everything for me is observation and conclusion. I mean, I've observed this over and over again. Um, you know, it, it, I have a funny saying about this. There's two kinds of money in the world. There's money and my money. Family businesses are dealing with money, my money, you know. And when it's your rear end on the on the line, you have a tendency to, to work better at it. And there's there's another thing that that that's the third component of my risk evaluation is that being family owned is a good indicator, but the better indicator is actually being operated by the family. And I told you a story earlier uh, of a situation where Will and I had a very large client uh, in the Chicago suburbs, obviously won't say the name, um, and, and was operated by the family and it grew the business dramatically, grew the business to almost a billion dollars or as soon as damn it, a billion dollars in sales. And the owners then decided that they wanted to step back a little bit and brought in a professional management team and instantly they hung us with a $17 million property loss simply because the, the family management turned it over to the professionals. And so again, families just, it's a, it's a, it's a coherent unit. Um, Will Denbo and Scott Denbo, my two sons are in the business with me and uh, we travel together uh, with another chap by the name of Jimmy Whitehair, uh, who's, who's sort of an adopted son. And, uh, Oftentimes when we were traveling, uh, we would hit the road at 4.30 in the morning and the over-under was whether Will and I were in an argument before we pulled out of my driveway. So, See, I told you, Justin. I had heard, I'd, excuse me, I had heard stories about this from Larissa. I, I, told, I told Justin, I said, have you ever traveled or been with Don and Will in a car or listened to them? I said, they have a banner about them and you're not sure they're going to come to blows or is this just the way they talk to each other? <laughs> and and what's interesting, um, I, I know uh, Ron knows Jackie Denbo, my wife, and the bottom line to it is that is that Jackie Denbo is is the doyenne of the family and the toughest. And I have it's it's not a terribly off color story to tell you, but it's it's a cute story, and I could make it a little vulgar, but I won't. <laughs> so, uh, Will and Scott were training together in, at the University of Southern California back in oh, let's say two thousand seven. Um, I guess that's about right, and and so they were. At a little junior college because they were throwing the hammer that afternoon. And uh, the coach says, uh, and, and Will and, I mean, Jackie and I were coming over to watch practice in the afternoon. And the coach said, uh, now, boys, uh, y'all be careful with your language now. Miss Denbo's coming over here. And and Will and Scott looked at the coach and said, coach, who do you think we learned this language from? <laughs> 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 so welcome to the Denbo family, guys. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. There is something special to working in a family business. I think, um, you know, my dad and I obviously work together and um, it, you definitely know how to push each other's buttons, unlike you have in any 
type of other relationship within the office. Uh, I've always said that he and I can push each other. We push each other to achieve more, but in addition to that, when you get upset, you know exactly where to go. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's a, a, around our family and hopefully at our insurance uh, agency. We take no prisoners and we bayonet the wounded. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. So, you know, I think that's a great overview of looking at a risk. Uh, you know, one thing I always found find fascinating in the risk management world, and especially with agents or anyone who works usually at an insurance company, is I've never met anybody who's six or seven who says, I really want to go into insurance when I grow up. What kind of took you down this path? I mean, you know, your history and kind of background is very... Purely accidental. I mean, I got a peculiar peculiar academic background. I, I uh, actually turned down a Rhodes Scholarship in my senior year in college to accept a full scholarship. It's called the Justin Potter Scholarship to Vanderbilt Medical School and uh, ended up going to medical school for a year. And it was, uh, shall we say, a mistake. <laughs> and uh, my parents were just apoplectic that I was leaving medical school and it was intolerable to be here. I was unemployed and unemployable, I would say. It got worse. Um, and <laughs> I had a couple of friends that I had gone to college with uh, that had gone to uh, Claremont University in California, and they had gotten uh, a fellowship and basically had their graduate work paid for. And I found this, or they helped me find uh, this fellowship to uh, London School of Economics and um, basically I had no money and no ability to make any money, but it was a far, it was as far away from my parents as I could get. <laughs> so I came back to Nashville, uh, and I'd worked under a Nobel laureate at Vanderbilt medical school. And uh, again, was trained by a Nobel laureate in London. And when I came back here, I, I think, I can't believe that anybody just didn't lock me in the closet. I mean, it was, I was such a insolent guy. Um, anyway. So our family banker hired me to go to work at First American National Bank, which is the predecessor of these days to Regions Bank, and ultimately became a commercial lending officer, which is a really worthwhile situation. A chap by the name of Bob Elliott was hired at the company that is today Willis uh, to be their sales manager, and he had played baseball at the University of Tennessee and had known of my academic reputation in college, and he recruited me into the insurance business. My father wanted me to come back and go into the, uh, into the scrap metal business. And, um, it's a much cuter story if Jackie tells it, but frankly, I will, even though it's not quite so cute when I do it. And so at this, at the end of like, um, 1975, which is what we're talking about, I got a bunch of job offers all of a sudden. And, uh, two of them were in the insurance business. And I said to Jackie, so she, so she reminds me whenever she has the chance, I said, I, I would never go into the insurance business, you know, only <laughs> w in the insurance business. Well, color me a W <laughs> 45 years later. I'll be a, a successful one. Well, yes. Um, thank you. It, it, it is, I, I got really fortunate for me. One of the things about medicine that was a little trying for me is it was very repetitious. And I think, I think medicine is, is by nature repetitive uh, because you have to, you can be a generalist, which means you're seeing different things diagnostically, 
But for specialists, and, and I mean, I've got lots of friends who are surgeons, and the thing that they would rather do than anything else in the world is be in surgery. Well, for me, the variety of things that I'm faced with every day, the opportunity to see different things and to learn. If you look at my clients over a 45 or so year history, they are so incredibly different. And, and for instance, one of, the, one of my favorite stories is I was involved with Feld Entertainment, uh, which is the company that owned while it was operating. It isn't anymore. Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. They also own Disney on Ice and the Monster Trucks and some things like that and Marvel Live these days. A family-owned business. Ken Feld is um, a year older than I am. Anyway, I was involved with them for 22 years. And when I, I left Caroon Black, which is now Willis, in uh, 1988, I had a non-compete, which I observed. And like about three days after I'd left, the uh, CFO at Ringling called me up or Feld called me up and said, what have you done? Where have you gone? I said, well, I've left. I'm starting over. Well, you can't do that. I said, well, well I don't know. I have what a contract. <laughs> and he said, well, I'll hire you as a consultant. I said, well, if, if Willis approves, I'm okay with it. And so I became fundamentally their director of risk management and ultimately became a board member and, and, Larissa, you knew Al Sykes at Tennessee Valley Recycling, didn't oh, you? Oh, yeah. Al was administrative officer of Ringling. Really? So when he retired, he was a little bit older than I am. He he retired. He'd made enough money, and he he was ready to go. And he traveled around in an RV for, oh, I don't know, 18 months or so with his wife. And I knew he'd be ready to come back. And when we merged the family businesses to create Tennessee Valley Recycling, I brought Al back. And so Al was our CFO from 2000 until we sold the business in 2017. And uh, we still stay in close contact. He's a good guy, dear friend. So you've done a little of everything, even working at the circus. Then. Yeah. <laughs> so by that time, we'd already, we'd already gotten into the railroad business. So, so basically, I, the, the circus travels by train. And uh, Al and I took over the rail car building operation and the circus operations and that worked out perfect yeah and, and we're in the railroad business we're, we're, somebody around here was in the railroad business so i think you also wanted me to go um and talk a little bit and this one's a little harder for me but the, i use it as the story about ringling and sort of being a risk manager is is to address how does one go about uh selecting uh from the other side okay i'm i right. live, I live most of, mostly by getting somebody to pick, pick me, pick me, put me in coach, um, you know, to, to be their insurance agent. That's what I do. It's what I've, it's what I've done. And so I have obviously far less experience in selecting insurance agents. Um, but I do have some experience in it. And I, th I think that's fascinating because, you know, what does make a good agent? What should companies be looking for? And like you said, there's, there's different kind of the agents are looking and they're, they're out there selling all the time. I mean, I've, I know Will and Scott really well and Jimmy and they're out there pushing, trying to, you know, gain new accounts. But I think companies have to also make sure that they've got the right match, the right agent for them. What would you suggest? That's a good point. I, the, a lot of clients I work with, a lot of them, at, especially at the middle level, they don't understand how much an insurance agent, they don't know what, what you guys can bring to the table for them. Well, and it's, it's, a, it's an, a peculiar comment. We are high level commercial insurance agents 
are massively mis misunderstood. And and uh, you you laugh, of course, when you hear me say this. Massively underappreciated. Ma massively underappreciated. Of course they are, Don. <laughs> <laughs> Just like loss control people. Just yeah. like yeah. loss control and claims people. I mean, people groan sometimes when we call, which is yes. sad. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. It's, it's, uh, there was a wonderful ad a number of years ago for Independent Life, which was based in, in Jacksonville, Florida. And they had a guy sitting in a coffin using a plane on the edge of the on the edge of the coffin. He had a very strange voice. And in the background, you hear you hear somebody disembodied. Here comes that insurance agent again. And you see the guy who's sitting in the coffin just very slowly lean back into the, into the coffin. So we're we're people really welcome us. Uh, except when they have a claim and then they're they're really happy. They're, they're usually I have to tell you a funny story. So I have a we had a client down in Georgia. I won't say the name of the client, but um, I was down there for loss control claim review. And you could tell they were nervous. The insurance people were there, um, but they had a light bulb go out. And the owner of the company jumps up on a roll-in chair to change it, which I might have done. And the safety guy, you could see him about to have a heart attack. He's the, clearing the, his throat. <laughs> The color goes out. Color, the color, <laughs> color drains from his face. And then all of a sudden, he goes, "Let me get that." The owner climbs down, and the safety director comes back with safety goggles, a ladder, you know, all of the appropriate PPE, gloves, everything to change the light bulb. And afterwards, I laughed. I said, "Y'all don't normally change the light bulb that way, do you?" And he goes, eh, "Maybe not." Superior. <laughs> So it's really, it's interesting, and, and, and I guess perhaps for this, for the benefit of whoever's listening to this thing who, who really don't know me at all and uh, have this disembodied uh, voice here, um, it, it's really remarkable what an insurance agent needs to know in order to do it the way that, that I, like, I like to do it. The bottom line, too, is the first thing that you have to understand that insurance agents are just intermediaries. And again, we talk about the legal relationship between insurance agents in this state and the insurance companies they represent. So it's important to know as an initial point that an insurance policy is a contract between the insured and the insurance agent. And it's another one of those points that I point out all the time to basically prospective clients, clients, and more particularly to the uninformed, and you are hardly uninformed, but I think I would phrase this, this is most effective, as a question. Tell me what is insurance? That's to you or anybody here. Yeah. It's a sharing of risk and being able to kind of, it's hard when you ask for an actual definition. Yeah, like when you ask people, what is, what is the definition of safety? You know, it's, it's a tough question. It's to me, question. when you ask me, what is insurance? It's, well, you're, you're going to take care of me when I have problems. Well, I mean, you're both right, but that's what it does. That's, what it that's does. not what it is. Right. And here's what it is. It's a really simple answer. And, and if you only, if you, and by those, by the way, those of you who are listening, remember only one thing from this, insurance is a promise to pay. Okay. So that was a much easier answer than mine. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, 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 and even sophisticated insurance buyers don't know it. But it's, for instance, when we train our producers, it's one of the first things that I teach them, okay? Because let's look at a general liability policy or workers' compensation policy. And I'm 
I know I'm wandering around, but but it's all part and parcel of the same thing. Just how do you evaluate uh, insurance agent at this point in time? And so the the policy says uh, we agree to pay those sums you become legally obligated to pay as a result of bodily injury, property damage, personal injury. Okay, we agree to pay. Another thing that most people don't know, because again, insurance is vastly complicated, but also can be vastly simple, particularly when you look at it as a promise to pay. And so everybody thinks about the limits of insurance that they buy. Okay. And so the standard general liability policy these days for commercial buyer starts with a million dollars of limits. Okay. But that's the amount that the insurance company agrees to pay if you become legally obligated through a, a settlement or a judgment or whatever. But there's a second component to insurance that people don't seem to think about, and that is defense costs. And defense costs, along with other things, are known as supplementary payments. And defense costs are unlimited. So it would be possible to spend a million dollars defending a settlement for a dollar. Of course, it won't happen. But, but I mean, I'm going to tell you as an example, and it's, it's timely uh, since we're sitting here on May the 8th and uh, Davidson County is going to open up on May the 11th or a little later. And we're in Williamson County, which opened up um, this past Monday as a result of this COVID-19 thing. I've been asked, over and over and over again, you know, are we covered? Well, we don't know. The, the answer the answer that I've given to people is maybe, because we're going to see litigation on this going on for the next five years, maybe longer. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I've been getting lots of questions on that from the work comp perspective, too. You know, is it going to be covered? You know, it's a big question right now. I don't know. We're getting a little more clarification, but I don't think anybody has a crystal ball even where this is going to go. And I think there's the liability side. There's there's so many different ways. In workers' compensation is a state-by-state basis. Correct. So that in Tennessee, it's been pretty clear so far that the powers that be do not deem um, catching COVID-19 as being compensable. But there are other states out there, like California, uh, uh, like Illinois, have been very specific that they are deeming it if it is contracted, particularly with, with first responders. Uh, if if first responders in their course of employment catch the virus, it's been deemed to be compensable. And again, in the general liability sense or the property sense with this business interruption issue, it's going to be years before we know it. And and the bottom line to it is there are states out there, no one has actually done it yet, but there are states out there who have proposed actually changing the uh, contract law and, and making uh, insurance policies respond. I mean, I, I get different articles on it and read them every day. It's going to be a long time before we know about this. You're just starting to put out some guidance, and you're right. There's there's definitely way more towards on a work comp side it being compensable if it's a first responder. But there's been some newer stuff as to you know what you know. I heard a question yesterday about what about restaurant workers or somebody else who's dealing with the general public or essential workers. And I think it's going to be a long time. I think it, and it's very state by state specific. It's 
one size does not fit all. And it's going to be a long time till we know the true impact. Of and it. that's the, the thing that's going to be most interesting about this is that, is that insurance and insurance companies and agents are governed by 50 different states. And there is no federal uh, overriding governance of this. And in point of fact, there's something called the McCarran-Ferguson Act, which actually prohibits the federal government from interfering in the in the administration of insurance companies. So at any rate, it, this is one of those things that just sort of lead back into how does a risk manager or a family-owned insurance buyer look at things? I, I want to observe to those listening that I think the business is evolving. The commoditization of the commercial insurance product, in my view, is coming to an end. I mean, the the traditional scenario has been the insurance agent shows up at your door. He's the guy that you go or girl you go to church with or you play golf with and that sort of thing. And they would say to you, well, I would like to quote your insurance and uh, because you're friends and you have some attachment, you say, sure. And the guy or girl comes by, picks up your policy and says, I'll be back to you in 30 days with, with price. I'll be, I'll be able to save you some money. Well, that's gone. We're going competing on price. While a reasonable thing to do, everybody wants to save money. Everybody's going to try to be competitive at least. The world has gotten so complex that I believe the, the direction for the larger side of the middle market which is where we focus, I focus, is beginning to be taken over by people who become experts in the word we used to use is niche, the word that has been adopted by the insurance business these days, which I think uh, I, I resisted it at first, but I've gotten to understand it a bit better and I like it better now. It's called vertical. So so the the vertical is interesting because let's let's talk about the largest part of our practice it, it should come as no particular surprise to you that it's in recycling because that's right. where i grew up it was supposed to be the fourth generation in the family business and part of the reason we sold it is because we didn't have a fourth generation and so that's the core perhaps where the practice starts but what's happened is that vertical for us has expanded upward into other things like people who are uh, attached to the recycling business. They can be, uh, if you go in one direction, it can be the people that manufacture the equipment or distribute the equipment or repair the equipment. It can be the people who consume the product. That could be secondary aluminum smelters. It can be steel mills. It can be foundries. And you can go down downstream to auto dismantlers who, who buy cars, part, it at, part them out, uh, and sell the hope. Okay. It can be people who demolish buildings or there's an environmental component of all recycling. I mean, uh, you may remember in the TVR days when we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in environmental compliance and testing. And so there's that component that's part of, part of the business. And so I've named five or six or seven different kinds of businesses that are in the, what we think of as we call it the recycling practice. Um, or the recycling space, but it's all part of this recycling vertical. 
And it goes into other things. Another of the things that we do, it's only natural that these are businesses that I've been in. I mean, for instance, we are still in the short line railroad business. We own two railroads currently. And so, again, we insure railroads. But then we also insure people who manufacture the parts, who, who repair the rails, who repair the, the locomotives, who build the cars, who make the wheels, who import things. Okay. And, and, and it goes up and down, up and down the, you know, the vertical. And it is, it is a very peculiar part of the business. And, and I, I presume you know this. I'm, I'm almost certain that you do. Well, in fact, I know you do since we use you to reprice in this, in this, of course you do. And so, uh, for, again, for the people that are listening to this, there is no workers' compensation in the railroad business. There's the Federal Employers Liability Act, which is a tort. And uh, again, let me put in a, a, a plug for Johnson and Associates. And so when I had the very first railroad, I mean, Ron and I go back to almost day one. And, you know, we, we both, we, we were both swaddled when we met. <laughs> so um, because I had gotten, gotten to know him when we had FILA losses, both for our own railroads and for our clients. So far as I know, we were the very first railroad that instinct that just came to Johnson and Associates with our medical bills and you reprice the medical bills, you know, the usual and customary. Today, it's not quite so common in the railroad space as it should be. But as an example, we had a catastrophic uh, loss on the Grenada Railroad, I guess, two years ago where we had an amputation right. and um, the repricing that you guys did for us on that railroad saved us $250,000. I appreciate the nod. Yes. But there definitely is, there's a lot of savings that can be had that a lot of people don't realize is out there. Yes. And of course we should also uh, give, give ourselves both a, without breaking our arms, a pat on the back. There's this, there's this long, (laughs) all of you that are listening, there's this long standing relationship between the Denbo family, commercial insurance associates and, and the Johnson family extended. (laughs) Yes, there there definitely is. I have a funny story, Don, uh, and you may not remember this, but it was probably one of the very first time, not the first time I talked to you. That's that's definitely not the case, but one of the very first time I met you in person. Um, and, and you're you're an art collector, and I think you create a lot of art too, because I remember the pictures on the wall, and I'll have to let you comment on that. But my name is unusual, Larissa. And one of the very first times I met you, you're the only person I've ever met that was able to tell me the origin of my name. And you you actually said you're like, based on approximately your age and everything, and I don't know if you remember now. (laughs) (laughs) You were like, you must be named after the movie or after the book, Dr. Zhivago, and uh, proceeded to ask me my favorite movies, which... At the time, I could think of nothing but Top Gun, and thank goodness I didn't say that to you because I thought he's going to think I'm an idiot. Highway <laughs> into the highway to the danger zone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was an awful movie. <laughs> well, it's a great movie in some ways, but at any rate, so sort of back in, in into this thing. So I think that the the world is evolving for the insurance buyer, particularly if you are in something not Main Street. The, the very first thing that I would advise a buyer to look to is a specialist in your vertical. Now, I, I would say the more common and typical your business is, and, and also the smaller it is, the, the less 
powerful concentrating in a vertical is. I mean, if you're if you're the if you're a restaurant owner and you own one restaurant, that's about as mainstream as you can get. Right. And there's not much that can be done to help you in that thing. On the other hand, uh, one of the other companies that we own was Dick's Last Resort, uh, and I think at peak we had you know, we've been out of it for three or four years. At peak we had just under thirty restaurants, and one of the things that we did in that business is we unbundled everything and we we went particularly in the general liability space to a tpa johnson associates is a tpa in the workers compensation but also in some other places and just simply controlling costs within the self-insured retention created results that were not to be believed. And we did the same thing in the workers' compensation area where we basically were self-administered um, on a on a self-insured retention in the workers' compensation. So again, those are the two ranges that exist for something that's not very esoteric, meaning restaurants. But but again, the special the specialist is going to grant the buyer, in my view, more often than not, superior terms and conditions. I mean, it's the classic story, you know, if you need to have a root canal, more likely than not, you don't go to your your regular dentist. Right. You want to go to an endodontist. And so that's where I think the business, the business, insurance business, agency business is evolving into that at this point in time. And And generally speaking, I would submit from that, having an insurance agent who understands a particular business sec- section will result, not always, will result in superior terms and conditions and competitive pricing. It's not not a perfect indicator, but it's a good indicator. And and so I think that's where I think that's where we're going. And then again, the the variety and needs that exist, and I kind of say, depending upon what you are, I don't know where the cutoff is. Uh, to me, uh, the limit is kind of around a billion dollars in annual turnover. And and I have another funny story to tell you. So I had a, a, a client that was acquired by a company that was risk management. Both of them were here in middle Tennessee and I won't name the names, although I could, it, it, it's, it's not really very material. And uh, this one company I'd had for a long time since they started and they sold to a publicly held company here in middle Tennessee. And they, they introduced me, uh, to the risk manager of the company they were, as they were buying my client. And the risk manager, very nice guy, very competent guy. And uh, I let my mouth overload my brain, something that I'm afraid happened more than it should. Um, and, and I came up with a remark that I use over and over again. It, in those days, it was an accident. And so I said to this chap, I said, you know, I typically don't do business with risk managers. And I don't. <laughs> Uh, as it turns out, but I said typically I don't do business with risk managers. He looked at me with great consternation to the to the effect that, uh, and you want me to do business with you? Um, and I said I don't do business with risk managers. And I said the reason is because they think they know everything, and I know I do. <laughs> I like that. That makes complete sense to me. The term vertical, and I, I think what what you're saying really makes sense too. It's it's moving more away from a relationship based structure it's not it's not like it was before where i'm your golf buddy i'm well hey let me quote your insurance 
it's it's more now it's more specialized and you know like somebody in the scrap metal recycling industry where it would help them you know I think maybe they need a shear that needs to be worked on and if, if you're specialized in that industry you can say well hey i i, I know um I, I i work with this company that can help you out so i, I totally see where that where that makes sense it's interesting the story that you just uh told is something that actually happened so to july the fourth no, excuse me yeah we're coming on so july the 4th of 2018 in the afternoon i get a call from a client in new york state i'll, I'll say about it and and they had had a fire in their warehouse and they had uh, a baler in their warehouse that was critical to their business and it burned up literally that afternoon after i got off the phone with them i called the owner of the company that manufactured it. And that afternoon I had their salesman at the location and we found them a replacement shear and had it in within 30 days. That's that really speaks to the importance of, of what, what you guys can do for a client. Well, and as you talked about in certain industries, that becomes way more important than, you know, your everyday retail store or something like that. Um, you know, in trucking and, you know, recycling metal, those type of things. That's not a risk that every insurance company even understands and much, much less, uh, you know, all, all the other components that support that industry really need to kind of align together. I mean, I'll, I'll take you to another place um, that, that may have some application for those listening to this thing. Um, and, and so you certainly know the FMCSA and, 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 safer scores and all that sort of thing. So we have a, a very large client who is a recycler of, of something difficult. And it's, uh, I, I'm, I can't use their name and I can't discuss them, but, and I, I don't, if I say what it is, then it would be easy for some people to figure out. And so therefore I won't, but I will say that part of, part of their business is the transport of a hazardous waste. Okay. And they use independent truckers. And when they first became our client, we were sitting in their conference room somewhere in the Northeast. And we decided that we were wanted to look at the, the cipher scores of or the cab reports, if you will, of, of their independent truckers that they were using to haul some stuff that was hazardous. And again, those listening hopefully understand that the Motor Carrier Act specifies if you have hazardous waste that you have to have a minimum of $5 million in limits in the automobile line. So we started looking at these independent truckers and we found that about a third of them didn't have it. And this very large, very successful business was basically doing trucking business under contract with people that were not compliant with the Federal Motor Carrier Act. And so right there on the spot, we were able to implement a change in these people's business process and basically showed them how to use the safer score, the FMCSA, which is public information, obviously, right. to, to basically confirm on the spot if any load that they were that they were having transported was hazardous. And so that is a, that's probably as compelling a story as I can tell that occurred in the last year or so of, of how an agent 
who is focused within a vertical can have a material impact on the financial security and integrity of a client. And, and it's interesting, Commercial Insurance Associates is about, you know, it's a moving target, but we're about the hundredth largest insurance agency in the United States. If you told me 110, I wouldn't argue with you. If you told me 90, I, I might a little bit, but we're about the hundredth largest, um, which is, there are 35,000 in the United States. Now, they're the Colossuses, Colossi, like Marsh and Aon. We're, I mean, we're, we're not even a pimple on the fat ladies rear end as compared to them. <laughs> but, uh, but, but the bottom line, dude, is within our specialty areas, we're as good as anybody. And, 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 and so these people were doing business uh, with a top 30. And I, I won't say a name. It's not important. Very well regarded. I mean, people I knew of. Right. And, and they had completely missed it. Missed this. It just never occurred to them. And so, again, that's a story of the validation of focusing within verticals. But, but again, the things that we do routinely for our clients. So let's, let, let's, it, it's, it's better if I had a visual, but since I don't, we, we're not going to do it. So I talked about the three things that I use to, um, to teach people how to decide whether a prospective client will be a good client fit for you. So there, there, there I call it the three-legged stool of risk. And I draw if you'll visualize in your mind, a three-legged stool, and on the top of it, you write risk. And then there are three legs, and there are only three things that you can do with insurance, or risk, actually, risk. We don't talk about insurance, we talk about risk, okay? You can assume it, you can transfer it, or you can eliminate it, make it go away, or get out of the business, okay? Assuming risk is okay, assuming you know what you're doing. There's the... <laughs> And everybody does it. So in your personal homeowner's policy or renter's policy or in your automobile policy, it's got a deductible. And if it's finance, the bank or the financing organization makes you, makes you insure the physical damage, comprehensive and collision. Okay. And so if you're taking a thousand dollar deductible, which is not unusual for a moderately expensive car these days, you're assuming a risk, but it's a very limited risk. Okay. You guys administer qualified self-insureds, right. and today about the minimum self-insured retention that one can acquire as a qualified self-insured in Tennessee anyway is $250,000 per occurrence, okay? Right. So you're assuming a $250,000 per occurrence, okay? That's another form of assumption, a bigger one, of course, okay? Transfer tends to be where we start when we're when we're doing this, and this is what I would tell, this was what I would tell the insurance buyer to focus on transfer. That's easy. Okay. Now, insurance is a way to transfer risk. Okay. Transfer it from you to the, whether you're a company or an individual, transfer it from you to the insurance company. Well, first of all, insurance is a very effective way to transfer risk. It just happens to be the most expensive way to transfer risk. <laughs> the first rule of risk management is to make somebody else responsible. And we also have to take note of the fact, the old plumber's expression, excrement flows downhill. And, <laughs> and, and so the first place we tell people to look when we begin um, evaluating risk, and I should, I should submit to the buyer, they need to look at what 
the agent's ability to help them understand their risk and how to transfer it. And the easiest way to transfer it is to implement a contractual program. We, we've developed something called a, an indemnity agreement. Larissa, it's interesting. The one that we use, Saul Miller, my partner at Tennessee Valley Recycling, and I created in 2000 when we, when we made the bigger company. We merged some family businesses, and we put in place the indemnity agreement. And we give it to everybody for free. We give everybody, uh, people don't even realize this. When you sign a purchase order, nobody ever reads the back of the purchase order. The purchase order says, by signing this purchase order, you agree to indemnify and hold harmless the buyer. People say, oh, really? I did that? Um, <laughs> and, and again, indemnity and contract is the least expensive way to transfer risk. And I came on this, you know, in the most natural way that you can do it. We got into the railroad business in 1984, 85, and the class one railroads have the most compelling indemnity provisions that you can imagine. By the way, here's a question for you. And, and this is just my own experience. It could be, I could be somewhat off, but do you know of all the people whose indemnity agreement that I've reviewed and I've reviewed hundreds, do you know who has the most demanding one? No idea. Home Depot. Home Depot, really? 12 pages long. The bottom line, too, is if you sold Home Depot a packet of screwdrivers, for the sake of argument, and your stock clerk was had a pallet or a truck of screwdrivers that he was putting on the shelf in a Home Depot store, and he turned around with his elbow and knocked one of them off, and it fell on a, a customer's toe in a Home Depot store. If you sold them the, if you sold them the uh, screwdriver. screwdrivers, you're wow. And I've actually had that claim. Wow. wow. So they're they're even worse than the Class One railroads, and they they basically take the position: you don't want to sell us, fine. There's somebody else that'll sign, and and <laughs> that's what. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and so that's that's one of the things that we do. The story that I told about the recycler of the hazardous material, again, they didn't have proper indemnification in place for these contract truckers. So we have a I'm, I'm, for those again who are listening, I'm very big on strategic partnerships. So really, Johnson and Associates was our first strategic partner when we started Commercial Insurance Associates. And, um, and and we've grown this into a number of different ways. There's a law firm that's uh, actually headquartered in Pittsburgh, but they're, they're a regional or semi-national company called Burns White. And Burns White has got a really top-notch railroad practice. And they're pretty much all across the Northeast and the Far West. And then there's a company that in, based in Birmingham called Burr Foreman, who pretty much gets the southern tier of states. And they're also a strategic partner in our railroad practice. And again, we have them on call, ready to, to be involved for a claim. Again, this, this claim that you repriced on is being handled by a lawyer at Burr Foreman. Now, if it had been in the Northeast, it had been somebody at, at, um, uh, at, our, at uh, our other friends, but but we've also got Burns White. Basically, we have on retainer 
And so whenever we come into a new client or we have a client who needs their indemnity, indemnity is state specific, just like insurance is. And so an indemnity agreement in Pennsylvania is different than one in Tennessee. And if you are unwary and who isn't, mind you, except for us, <laughs> the bottom line to it is if you use a generic agreement, instead, it, it will be okay, but it won't be fully compliant. And when you're in states like New York or Pennsylvania, where the law is pretty unfavorable you know, to the unwary, we are yep. basically, we have Burns White on retainer and they're constantly reviewing our clients or we've written them for them. Um, indemnity agreements. And again, um, another thing that we do that's kind of interesting, we have an associate whose practice is what we call a forensic insurance agent. And so he's managing old claims for Fortune 50 companies, okay? Forensic, looking for coverage, um, negotiating, uh, again, within self-insured retentions um, for commutation of claims and that sort of thing. But as part of this, uh, we've got a, a cadre of coverage counsel all over the United States. Now, we don't have people in every state because that would be 50, but we probably have 20 people, 25 people who, who work their whole practice as lawyers is, is coverage. Okay. And look, I'm an insurance agent, as we've determined, and I am beholden to the insurance companies. But the, uh, the insurance company mantra these days is the three D's delay, deny, don't pay. <laughs> and, and so 20% of the time these days on, on claims, we are either threatening coverage counsel or litigation, because again, we have a tendency to be more in the larger, more sophisticated, again, verticals. And, and basically in some respects, for companies that don't have risk management, we become risk managers. And we developed what I'd call an outsourced risk management program. Um, I mean, again, for small railroads, we do it all over the country. Very highly specialized stuff. Um, but, but again, having the ability to instantly reach out to get an opinion of whether or not, you know, I have a, it's a, it's a wonderful, it's one of my favorite stories. There's a railroad somewhere in Tennessee. And someone, gosh, I have to be a little careful here. They're on a navigable waterway. Let's leave it at that. They're, one of their shops is on a navigable waterway. And somebody broke into their shop and opened a tanker, a fuel tanker, and it drained into the Tennessee River. I gave, gave it away. It's okay. Um, anyway, it goes all the way around, so it could be anywhere. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, the fire department... Uh, reached out and called uh, an emergency cleanup contractor. They happened to call the most expensive. And this company was given a $180,000 cleanup bill from the emergency response contractor. And they were well off, are still well off, and they paid it. And this was before they were our client. And so we called on them and we said to them, um, you got any problems with claims? That's a, one of the things that we do when we solicit business. You have a claim that hadn't been settled the way you thought? Well, he tells us the story. We said, that doesn't make any sense. So we start digging into it. And ultimately, what we decided is the automobile coverage should have responded to it. And 
again, I won't say the name of the insurance company. It, it doesn't anything. So anyway, we, we go through the claims and we finally get to a junior in-house counsel and we're ready to try and get this claim. It'd been, and um, we finally got them to respond. So Scott Denbo, Tim Green, who's this forensic insurance agent and I were sitting in. Tim's brilliant at this, this type of stuff. He is absolutely brilliant. And, and so we're sitting in Tim's office. So we, you know, it's, it's, um, Gary Cooper walks out onto the street. Anyway, anyway, so we've got this junior in-house counsel and he says, you know, I've looked into this and I've found a piece of case law that covers this exactly. So we're in Tim's office and he gives us the citation. We're, we're on Westlaw. We pull it up and we look at it. He figures he's got us. So we said to him, it's interesting. This decision was in Maryland. Yes. We said to him, it's interesting. There's six states in the country that don't treat insurance contracts policies as contracts of adhesion. Do you all know what a contract of adhesion is? In general terms, yes. It basically says that it's, it is terms that are dictated from one party to another and the party to whom they're dictated has very little ability to Im- have any input into the terms and conditions of the contract. That's, that's all it is. So we said, there's six states in the country that don't treat policies as contracts of adhesion. Maryland is one of them. This is a Maryland decision and doesn't have any application in Tennessee where there, this is considered a contract of adhesion. Oh, I'll get back to you. Check showed up the next week. <laughs> Well, and you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I've, I've enjoyed t- to a degree, I've, I've talked all around how one goes about selecting an agent, but I, I think it, it may have been, and I, I thought I, I perhaps should have been a bit more didactic about it, meaning more teachy or preachy, this case may be. Um, but I actually think realistically, the stories maybe hammer home the points that I really wanted to make more than just simply representing it. And so what I've given the people who are listening is an insight into the nuts and bolts of really high-end risk management practice. Now, look, let's be clear about it. Most of the claims that we have are no big deal. Nobody, you know, they get turned in, they get paid. Nobody raises so much as an eyebrow. But all the value that we add, and by the way, it's not referring just to me or commercial insurance associates or even Tim Green, but, 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 the, but the real value that we add is in the advising and the knowledge and the ability to respond on the claim that's difficult. No, that's interesting you say that. Uh, I've always said that 80, 90% of all claims, it doesn't matter which line it is, are straightforward, they're easy. It, it almost doesn't matter who's handling it. it it's going to kind of go the same way. But, it, you know, going back to the old 80-20 rule, it's those that 20% of claims that are problems or complex or involve issues that are outside the norm. And that's usually where the cost comes. It's also where the frustration comes. It's also where that specialization helps. And I, I appreciate the stories, I think, like you, it's easy to say, hey, finding somebody who specializes in your business is great. 
but I think it's it's the it's those specific examples that really drive home the importance of of having that. And similar, you know, you can have an orthopedic surgeon and just because they're an orthopedic doesn't mean that, you know, they may be a lot better at an ankle surgery or really specialize in on that versus a knee or a shoulder or something. It doesn't mean they can't do it. Look at what you guys do for the sake of, for the sake of argument. Okay. And, and so let's, let's look at one side of Johnson and Associates. Let's look at the TPA side. Right. Okay. And, and, there are dozens, maybe hundreds of companies out there that compete compete with you. But if, if you look at what your standard operating procedure is within, let's just focus on workers' comp for a moment, within your workers' comp program, okay? The first thing is that your, your, your service person is handling 70, 75 claims. In our office, 75 claims per adjuster. Well, in XYZ insurance company, and we all know who XYZ is at this point in time, handling 200. Okay. And these are a combination of meds, med onlys, as well as indemnity. But so that's, that's one thing, but let, let's just look at a, let's look at a small indemnity claim, a $10,000 claim. Right. So it doesn't matter where it occurs. The very first thing that you're going to do is you're going to determine in your own view a, is it compensable? B, is it legitimate? It may be A, is, is it legitimate? And B, is it compensable? Okay. This is a question. Not always the same. Not but- always the same. But it's a question that you ask on every single claim. And your, your folks are empowered to make that decision. Okay. The XYZ insurance company adjuster may not be there. The next thing is that all medical bills are going to be repriced, okay? And that service is granted within whatever your fee is. XYZ Insurance Company generally says that if they reprice, they're entitled to 27% of the savings from the repricing, okay, or Im- imposing into their PPO um, uh, net uh, network, okay? It's just part of the fee for you guys, but it's standard operating procedure, Okay. Then there's the management of the treatment until you reach MMA. And then there's the, there is the attention to detail in the determination of um, indemnity. Okay. What percent of the body as a whole? It's going to be looked at. The AMA guidelines are going to be looked at, are going to be followed. And then if there's any shenanigans or you think that it's, you know, you guys are not the least bit reluctant to put surveillance on people. And and again, most buyers of workers' compensation may not even know that these services are available. I mean, I'd say that people who pay a few hundred thousand dollars in workers' compensation are hardly aware that that this is available. But if they knew that it was available, it would be pitched to them as, ooh, this is something really special that we're doing for you. When in point of fact, Everybody ought to be doing it on every claim. And you and I look at people, Larissa or Justin, we look at people who don't do it and we say, are you crazy? How could you be so dumb? I often say it's an old school approach, but it's basically just actually doing what should be done. It's the basics and doing the basics right and doing them right on every single one. And and it's, it's, you know, it's the, 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 it's repetitious, but again, 
knowing knowing how to, to do these things. I, I, I think we've been at it for how long? We probably are, are running out of time for sure. I want to tell you one last story that's All one right. of, that is, and then we'll, we'll go on. And this is, this is, this perhaps will hammer home to, again, the, the audience, both of you um, um, who, who are listening to this. And it's my favorite story about skill set within a vertical. So 10 or 12 years ago, I, I can't remember. One of our clients bought three railroads from Weyerhaeuser, the forest products company. So Scott Denbo goes to Seattle. Actually, he and some friends had gone to climb Mount Rainier, but it just so <laughs> happens, just so happens, it just so happens that we, that we of course, and, and uh, the risk manager is in uh, the Seattle area for Weyerhaeuser. And, and we had to, we, were, we had this, this um, acquisition that was scheduled. And in those days, I can talk about Warehouser because they're not my client. And I was a part owner of the company that did the acquisition. So I'm not disclosing anything I'm not in, in, empowered to. So at that point in time, Warehouser was doing a total cost of risk program that required them, they bore the first 10 million each and every. Okay. And that could be a workers' compensation claim, it could be a fire. It could have been uh, their, you know, their their medical program. Everything total cost of risk was a self insured ten million dollars, and that I mean, they they apparently fine company. I mean, getting to know their risk manager seemed to know what he was doing. Anyway, so on one of these railroads, they had had a five million dollar FELA claim, or six five or six. I can't remember exactly about that. At any rate, since we were doing this acquisition that loss was going to have to be disclosed to our underwriters. And that was a big number. Well, in the FILA world, there is both a plaintiff's bar and a defense bar. And everybody knows everybody else. I mean, there are a few dozen of these people across the country. And they're, they're constantly litigating with each other. And if, if you are on the defense side and you don't have a specialist in this area and one of the other 25 Plaintiff's counsel is up against you, prepared to get the you know what knocked out of you, <laughs> and and obviously we're there. So we looked at this claim, and we said, this doesn't make any sense. And then we started asking questions, and this was an example of Weyerhaeuser had their usual defense counsels, and they were not properly represented in our view. And so we got the transcripts of the trial. It actually went to trial, and judgment was rendered in favor of the plaintiff to this five or $6 million or whatever it was. So we got the transcript of the trial and we gave it all to Burns White and Burns White went through this thing with a fine tooth comb. And we asked for an opinion, which we had to pay for, of course, you know, if they had been in this uh, case, what did they believe the most likely outcome was? And they rendered an opinion for which we paid again um, that they felt that the claim should have settled for a million dollars, give or take. So we were able to take that claim with that opinion to our underwriters to get terms and conditions. And I, I think it's one of the most interesting and innovative approaches that we've ever taken to representing a client, but it's one that gives me a great deal of delight in telling people the story. That's awesome. That's an interesting story. Interesting story, especially after the fact, going back and getting that opinion and getting them to take that. That's... I thought it was a very creative approach and one that I, 
proud of actually. Yeah. I've got one, probably one final big question related to all this and, and I'll, I'll frame it up, but as a safety consultant, loss control consultant, my, my challenge with our clients, a lot of them is helping them understand that, Hey, safety, it needs to be on the same plane as everything else. But what, I, what, what's crazy is I still run into business owners that they don't have that focus at all. They don't have risk management programs in place. What would you say to a business owner that just, you know, out there that, that aren't focusing on that and really don't think that that's important still to this day? Well, I mean, to a degree in this, Justin, I, I would say I'm old school. Yeah. Okay. And in that case, what I would do is do, do something that you've seen in your career a thousand times. I draw the iceberg and you, you know what I'm talking about? Yep. So for those of you who don't listen, uh, it's, it's basically looking at the cost of a loss and the iceberg is 10% above the water and 90% below the, the water line. And, and so basically what happens when a loss occurs, 10% is the direct cost of the loss. If it's a worker's compensation claim, it's the direct money that was paid as well, both the medical and the, and the indemnity. It, it is what it is. What, what isn't looked at is the fact that if it's bad, all of a sudden everybody in the factory or the floor or whatever it is gasps. Somebody's got to take employee A to the emergency room or the hospital or to the doctor or something. Then for the next half an hour, they're going to sit around, not work and buzz, which by the way, I think is perfectly human nature. And, and, and then what happens is what we, what we found in the 90% is that oftentimes when there is a worker's compensation claim or an auto claim or whatever, there is, there is ancillary damage. People ran the forklift truck into the wall of the factory or something else like this happens. And so the bottom line to it is that's where I would start with this thing. But, but you know what? It's sort of back to where I started on this thing, Justin. They're horses for courses. And, and so for me personally and for my team, I hope if, if somebody doesn't really understand this, we want to teach them. Yeah. We, we're working with a, a 500 unit trucking fleet in the middle of Illinois right now. And tough state already, although it's pretty suburban or, or rural Illinois. And so we, we were able to pull uh, their cab report, and we've got analytics that we use on it, and we basically are able to break the points down by VIN numbers. And we were able to show them that three of their VIN numbers, read three drivers, were accounting for 30%, 30% of their rating. And we, we were able to say to them, okay, these three drivers – are costing you $250,000 a year. Now, what do you want to do? <laughs> I've had a similar conversation with employers before. I'm like, you're paying this guy, but he accounts for 80 for, you know, whatever it is, huge amounts. It's amazing how you can eliminate just. just the thing about it is here, guys, it's, it's knowing how to, A, knowing the analytics exist and knowing how to do them. Yep. And, and look, you show somebody that, and they don't react the way that we all just reacted, they can't be my client. Right. I'm not for everybody. Right. They're not for everybody. I mean, I, I cannot, I won't tolerate our people doing business with folks 
who don't care about risk and don't, I mean, we've done business together for ages. And have you ever seen us bring a client who didn't care? You won't ever see it by the way, because we won't do business with them. Yeah. Life is too short. Yeah. That's a, that's a great answer to that. And you know, it, it boils down to what's important to you, you know? You know, I've always found once you can get through to a client and the risk, and you you mentioned um, before about the client who was so huge and has, you know, $45,000 worth of losses, and we've seen the same thing, and every business has inherent risk to it, um, you know, and there's going to be, and I know in your business that there were catastrophic claims that we work together on. Um, and that's really what insurance is there for. But it's always amazing to me, the ones that really put a focus in it. I find that their operations start working better. But in addition to that, the amount of savings in industries you would think of as super high risk, ones that you possibly can't control, you just need to accept some of it. How much of that really can be controlled in the success? And I know you've seen the same thing. But I, but I would submit to you with the analytics that we've got today, it's quantifiable. But, but the thing about it is, I think it's back to Justin's question. Look, we're all professionals and we've, we've all dealt with lots of people. I mean, it's the classic story. You know, what's good about hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. What would that be? I can't think, I can't think of anything right now. It feels so good when you quit. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Yep. <laughs> the bottom line to it is if you are trying to lead this particular horse to the water. Okay. We know. You just talked about it. I mean, we can we can quantify for people if they're willing to listen what these actions will do to their profitability, to employee morale, to all of the things. I mean, today, you know, we're moving from the classic Milton Friedman business model where the shareholder is all that matters to to the more business roundtable uh, paper that came out uh, the other day. Um, you know, where stakeholders of all sorts have to be considered. I've always been, I've always been somewhere in between and, and probably still am. But the bottom line to it is clearly our most valuable asset in any business owner's mind should be his or her employees. Right. Okay. And, and if you don't care and you don't want, to, and you don't want to do it, then we, you know, I'm just not compelled to do business with people like that. I don't have to, and I won't. I think that goes back to, you know, that family mentality. I think in addition to them caring about the money and that type thing, generally I found that companies that are family run, that type of thing, they, they, that passes on to their employees feeling like they're part of that family. And well, you may recall Joel was very blunt about this. He says, you're going to work safer. You're not going to work here. He was adamant on that, you know, and, and, and whether he came to that conclusion on his own or he learned it from me or we learned it together. It's unknown. Nonetheless, we felt the same way about it. And we went years without having a lost time accident. Years. In a very dangerous business. In an inherently dangerous business, I would submit. So I lied to you when I said I had one final question. Okay. Um, <laughs> this, this was extremely important to me because like you, I'm a foodie. So uh, what, what, if you had to pick a restaurant in the United States, and I know it's tough. That's hard. I know there's so many of them. Maybe a couple. What, what would you say? would be your, your go-to place. One of my favorite restaurants is, is a restaurant in Chicago called RL, which is owned by Ralph Lauren. Okay. It's on, um, is it on Oak, Oak street. It's at the corner of, I think it's at the corner of Oak street and, uh, Michigan Avenue. 
Um, it, it's just one, it's just, it, it, the food's delicious. It's, it's a traditional American restaurant that it's nothing, you know, fabulous or anything like that, right. but, but the food's delicious. Yeah. It really is. I love the food um, up there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really good. Um, it's just, and it's just a, a lovely, I, I, one last story. So, um, it, it's tr- typical Ralph Lauren place. There, there are only two of these restaurants in the country. And, um, so there's back in the left-hand corner, there's a, a painting of, 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 of a gentleman who's got on a series of medals and stuff like that. And, uh, just on this particular, I'd known it was there. I'd never really gone over to look at it. And, uh, it was winding down. It was maybe 10 o'clock and there was a party of seven or eight sitting under it. And I just didn't disturb them. I walked over to, to look at it. And somebody in that party says to me, uh, well, you know, what are you looking at? And I said, well, I, I come here all the time. And I, I was just looking at what these, what these medals and orders he got. I collect medals and orders. And, and he basically had on, had on what's known as a garter star, the order of the garter, which is one of the two highest orders of knighthood in, in Britain. And, and it, I, I think I identified who it was, but at any rate, so I start talking with these people and um, I, I said to them, well, um, it's nice to meet you. I'm so forth. Don Denmo, nice to meet you. Sorry to interrupt. And he said, no, that's no, fine. We enjoy talking to you. What do you guys do? Well, we're in the clothing business. And I said, oh, really? With whom? He says, Tory Birch. And that's Tory Birch. <laughs> wow. wow. That's cool. That's cool. cool. That's very cool. Well, Don, we really appreciate having you on. Justin had one final question. I've got one. If you've got a prediction on UT football this year, you think they're going to first have the games in the stadium in Neelam? And then what kind of record do you think they're going to have this year? I think they're going to be better. I think they may be much better. Um, uh, this was a good recruiting class. Um, I, I, I think they're going to be much better. I, I, I think I would – by the way, if they hadn't lost those two games this past year, they would have won 10 games. So they I think they'll win 10 games. Yeah, I, I, I think they're going to win 10 games. Yep. 10 games, all right. And, it's going to be, and, and we're going to see play at Neyland Stadium. I think the world is about done with this virus business. Yeah. I, I'm hoping we get football back. I, I, I enjoy it. Gosh, so. no sports for 60 days. Oh! I know talk radio for sports has been a little dry recently, <laughs> but uh, we were, we were actually right when all this, when sports shut down, but the restaurants hadn't shut down, we were at a bar and they had, were replaying old UT Alabama game. And my husband was just as upset as he had been like 10 years ago, <laughs> rewatching it. <laughs> you know, you're desperate when you're watching old golf tournaments. Like, I, like yeah, I, absolutely. I believe me. <laughs> well, it's joy, a real uh, joy being here with you guys. Appreciate the relationship very much. We appreciate it too, Don. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Thanks for listening today to The Safety Exchange with myself, Larissa Featherstone, and my co-host, Justin Gray. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. And if you would like to be featured on a future podcast or have an idea for a topic, please leave us a comment on our social media. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at JA underscore safety or on Facebook and LinkedIn at Johnston & Associates. Thanks so much for joining us.